So this month marks the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment, when the right to vote in this country was extended to some women. Emphasis on some, and that's part of what our guests touch on this week. There's no question that the 19th Amendment was a major moment for voting rights, but a lot of women were left out of it. That's right. Of course, because of Jim Crow laws, most African-American women, especially those who lived in the South, couldn't vote until 1965. And I didn't learn this until just this week, but surprisingly, a lot of white women in some of those states couldn't vote in 1920 either because their states dragged their feet on implementing the law. Of course, a lot of those states that we're talking about were in the South, which played a huge role in nearly blocking the passage of the 19th Amendment. In fact, it passed by just one vote in Tennessee, the final state for ratification. And that was one of the few states in the South that actually ratified it at all. And the South also played a major role in the death of the Equal Rights Amendment and the rise of both feminist and anti-feminist movements in the U.S. Welcome to The Reckon Interview. I'm R.L. Nave. And I'm John Hammontree. And today we're just a couple of dudes talking about women's suffrage in the South. We're also talking about the South's role in larger movement for universal women's rights. Not only that, we talk about how black women have always been at the forefront of movements for suffrage, civil rights, as well as other later movements. Yes. Today we're speaking with Dr. Marjorie Spruill, a South Carolina-based historian who has covered the long history of women's suffrage and voting rights in the South. She walks us through how male-led Southern governments tried to kill the idea of women's suffrage in part because of their hatred of black suffrage, and how suffragists worked to rally support in the South for the 19th Amendment. We also talked to Erin Haynes. She's an Atlanta-area native and editor-at-large at the 19th with an asterisk, a new nonprofit newsroom covering the intersection of gender, policy, and politics. Erin talks about the importance of the asterisk in her organization's name, how Black women have always led movements in the South, as well as the anniversary of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, the first, she notes, that will commemorate without the late Congressman John Lewis. So let's go ahead and get started with Dr. Marjorie Spruill on this week's episode of The Reckon Interview. Okay, Dr. Marjorie Spruill, thank you for coming on The Reckon Interview. Thanks for inviting me. This week and this year, we are celebrating the 100th anniversary of the passage of the 19th Amendment. And I think many people out there may not realize just how close it came to not passing and the role that the South played, uh, as you've written and as you've called them, the nemesis uh, of women's suffrage. What was it about the 19th Amendment that the South rejected and why? It had a lot to do with the fact that at the time women were trying to get the right to vote, I would say 1890 to 1920 was exactly the period of time in which white Southern conservatives were trying to reassert their control over the region. And they were extremely interested in cutting the number of people who were able to vote. And they saw the woman's suffrage movement as accurately as a direct outgrowth of the anti-slavery movement. And even though white suffragists were doing their darndest to try to convince these uh, men that control the region, that uh, woman's suffrage was not a threat to white supremacy They weren't buying it, and they definitely saw it as a threat to white supremacy. And I think that's something that a lot of people, myself included, don't necessarily understand historically. It's not often taught that way that, you know, even before the war, the abolition movement and the women's suffrage movement, particularly up north, were kind of linked. And then once emancipation happens, suddenly there's really this kind of political infighting amongst women's suffrage groups about what to do when it comes to universal suffrage and 
and the rights of African-Americans. That's sort of right. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, pretty much all of the people who were working for women's suffrage or women's rights before the Civil War were in the Northeast, some of them out in the, the Midwest, but all of them were for universal suffrage. But what happened was that when some of their allies, particularly the men, Wendell Phillips especially, said, we can't get both. We can't get suffrage for the freedmen and include women's suffrage. And at the same time, we're going to have enough trouble getting first the 14th and then the 15th Amendment through Congress and getting it ratified. And if we attach this super controversial issue of women's suffrage to it, we will probably not succeed. And so it was at that point that the women who were supporting women's suffrage and women's rights, and we're supporting equal suffrage for everyone, regardless of race or gender, had to make a, a tough choice about whether or not they were going to support the 15th Amendment anyway. And one group led by Lucy Stone and Henry Blackwell and others formed the American Woman Suffrage Association headquartered in Boston. And again, even though they wanted women's suffrage badly, they said, as Lucy Stone put it, if anyone can get out of this pit, meaning disfranchisement, you know, I've got to support that. And the Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony were very upset that they were being asked not only to support the 15th Amendment, they were being asked not to work for women's suffrage during that time and, and to say, that's going to have to wait for the future. This is the Negro's hour, was what Wendell Phillips said. And it was at that point that Susan B. Anthony said to him in his office, I'd rather cut off my right arm than work for suffrage for the Negro and not for the woman. But they really wanted universal suffrage at that point. Well, and once the 14th and 15th Amendments pass, you know, in the South, you have that brief period of Reconstruction where African-American men do get some representation in government. As you mentioned, the kind of conservative white male power structure violently rebels against that, seizes control back from the Reconstruction governments and implements the so-called redemption governments. And at that time, when they were debating suffrage in that moment, there was a push from some white women in the South to basically say, well, give white women suffrage because then it'll be easier to maintain white supremacy because white women outnumber black women and, and black men. Exactly. And they did this with the support and, in fact, at the suggestion of national American woman suffrage leaders because they realized that if they were ever going to get a 19th Amendment, or excuse me, a federal suffrage amendment, that they were going to have to have some Southern support, that you have to have two-thirds of each House of Congress, and then it has to be ratified by three-fourths of the states. You obviously have got to have some Southern support. And so they were realizing that they were getting absolutely nowhere in the region. And in the 1890s, the period we're talking about, uh, Laura Clay of Kentucky famously said, you can work for 100 years and you'll get nowhere unless you bring in the South. And at that time, they were looking at Southern politics and thinking, okay, we've learned already that you can argue for the justice of women's suffrage till you're blue in the face and get nowhere. You have to have a, an argument, an expediency argument, something that will convince politicians that, that this is going to be helpful rather than harmful to them. And they actually got this idea initially 
from the husband of Lucy Stone, Henry Blackwell, who was an abolitionist. But he didn't see that it was all that harmful to say, let's don't take the vote away from the men, uh, from the black men, just enfranchise all women. And then you will outvote. Of course, what happened was that it was pointed out to all of them that the white and black population is not equally distributed in every ward and county of the South. And there were lots of places where there's black majorities. And so then they started talking, okay, property requirements. That will do the job. That will make sure that most of the women who were enfranchised are white. So that was the kind of thing that was happening in the 1890s. And ultimately, the Southern politicians who were in control, just they didn't want women's suffrage any more than they wanted black suffrage. And so they found other ways, as we know, to do it through between 1890 and 1903, series of constitutional conventions in Southern states or changes in their rules having to do with voting qualifications, including understanding clauses, literacy tests, property tests, poll taxes. And in terms of the literacy or, or understanding clauses, definitely applied with discrimination against African-Americans um, at the registrar's discretion. And, you know, they, they had worried that Congress or the Supreme Court might not let them get away with it, but they did. And uh, they let them get away with it all the way up until 1965. Well, and it's interesting, you know, I mean, we see this with labor movements. We see it with so many other political movements in the South. You know, things might start out as coalitions, broad coalitions for universal suffrage, and then kind of the the white men in power say, oh, well, you can have one or the other, and then ultimately you get neither. Another thing that you pointed out that I think is interesting is in some of the southern states, I guess starting around 1910, you see this battle between women who want a federal suffrage bill versus women who want to do it at the state level. And then you have kind of a three-way infighting between anti-suffrage women and then women who want it at the federal level versus women who want it at the state level. And I guess particularly in Louisiana, that resulted in, in no suffrage. That's right. A three-way fight during the time that the federal amendment was in the ratification stage. You had women going in front of the legislature who were arguing on both sides of the question. A very small minority of the Southern suffragists refused to support a federal amendment at all. It was a very interesting case where a woman named Kate Gordon, who was a reformer, actually, in, in New Orleans, but one of the more negrophobic of the Southern suffragists, she was passionate about states' rights. And though she had been an officer in the national organization back in the 1890s and all, and would sort of threaten the South with a federal amendment if you don't give us the vote state action. You know, push came to shove, she was going, oh, we can't do that, you know, and, and besides that, the South is never going to do that, and you, you need to even stop bringing that up, because if you do, we won't get it, so she really changed her, her tune, and in the end, when it came down to Tennessee, she and Laura Clay actually went to Nashville, and as they put it, fought on the side of the hated anti-suffragists. Well, and it's interesting, because I think an increasing number of people understand and recognize that after the passage of the 19th Amendment, the majority of African-American women, particularly in the South, did not get franchised until 1965 with the Voting Rights Act. What was also interesting that I didn't learn until reading some of your writing is that 
you know, a lot of Southern white women didn't get the <laughs> didn't get the vote in 1920, that there were states that delayed implementation basically as long as they could. Isn't that interesting? In, in Mississippi, they did not allow women to vote in the November 1920 election, but they already had on the, the ballot a referendum on whether or not women should be given the right to vote. So all male voters vote on this in November 1920 and shoot it down while women are voting everywhere. But the, here's what's really amazing. Two years later, three years later, in the first election in Mississippi in which women could vote, they elected two of the leading suffragists to the state legislature, which is, you know, go figure. How does how does this happen? Well, we, we've talked, I guess, a lot about kind of the resistance to the suffrage movement in the South. There are some Southern roots for the pro-suffrage movement, obviously, particularly African-American women. Ida B. Wells, uh, I understand she did a lot of that work while living in the North, but Southern roots. But there, there's a woman who I, I don't know is necessarily as widely known as she should be, but Adela Hunt Logan. Yes, fascinating person. She was a faculty member at Tuskegee Institute. Her husband was the treasurer of the university and Booker T. Washington's right-hand man. She was just passionately interested in, in women's rights. She was not allowed to attend or, uh, these white suffragist conventions if they were held in southern states. She very much hurt and resented that, but she believed in the cause. She admired Susan B. Anthony. She knew about her abolitionist roots. She became a life member of the National American Women's Suffrage Association, and she was a member of the National Association of Colored Women, the NACW, and she was one of many African-American women who promoted woman suffrage through it, and she encouraged it to her students. There was one time when she had a meeting, a private meeting with Carrie Chapman Catt during a national suffrage conference where she wasn't allowed to participate, but Catt met with her individually. And she said afterwards, she slipped into the back of the room and attended the meeting because she said, I just wanted to see how, quote, the superior sister does things. She was writing to, to a friend because she was from a family in Georgia uh, that was a mixed race family and she, her skin was very light and she didn't, she was passionate not about her African-American identity, but only passed for white on a few occasions when, such as this, when she especially wanted to see something, or frankly, to be able to travel safely through the South on the trains. And, and then she would buy a first-class ticket and be safe. I do want to fast forward a little bit to the Equal Rights Amendment, because that's another major fight that we see and, and this time ultimately is kind of defeated in the South. Can we talk about kind of the growth of the feminist and the anti-feminist movement, especially in the South? There's this new wave of, of women's rights activism that gets started in the 60s. It comes sort of an outgrowth of these government-appointed commissions on the status of women. It originated with the Kennedy Presidential Commission, and then state governments followed with lots of these. And these were in the South as well. They were appointed, the members were appointed by the governors. So in most places, there were 
maybe a few token black women on it. But in Mississippi, Ross Barnett, you know, he appoints and he appoints all white and wives of leading segregationists and all. But at any rate, in most southern states, these commissions studied the status of women and identified problems that needed to be changed. And, and it basically helped to, like it did all over the country, to create these networks of women's rights activists, as well as to identify what the key issues were. And then new national organizations were created, like the National Organization for Women that was started in 1966 and took up the ERA, which was this old cause that hadn't gotten anywhere. And then the National Women's Political Caucus, which was started in 1971 with bipartisan support. And there was a lot of support. And in fact, Texas was actually a real haven of uh, feminism, uh, as well as anti-feminism. They had uh, people like uh, Liz Carpenter, who had been Lady Bird Johnson's press secretary and was one of the founders of this National Women's Political Caucus, and later co-chair of the ERA America Committee. There was Sarah Weddington, you know, who as a very young lawyer argued Roe v. Wade successfully before the Supreme Court, and then was later one of Carter's aides in the Carter White House. It was, you know, different world at the time. At least Texas seemed to be. Well, and you know, a lot of the reforms, I guess, that were being advocated at the time are, are reforms that in some ways feel even more needed right now, I guess, during the pandemic, universal child care. Yes, that was um, in the early 70s, before the conservative women organized. And when there was all this activity being generated by these women's commissions and public opinion polls were showing that Americans were really supportive of equal rights for women. There was this wonderful period of a few years in Washington, D.C., where even politicians who had no use personally for feminism felt obliged to support it. They felt like that's what women wanted. That's what men wanted. That's what the polls showed. And then, of course, in 1970, on the 50th anniversary of the women's suffrage, there were marches and demonstrations all over the country, which kind of remind me, actually, of that uh, 2017 Women's March in D.C. There were 50,000 people going down Fifth Avenue in New York. And again, it was all over the country. And there were sister marches out of sympathy, even in other countries. I mean, it just really showed how broad the support was for the women's movement in 1970. And so what happens is since it's bipartisan, okay, that's how you get things done, right? Uh, we, we don't ever see anything get done anymore because we can't get any bipartisan cooperation. But during that period, there was amazing progress. And uh, Bella Abzug of New York was in there, uh, but there were also uh, Republican women working with them through the Women's Caucus. And they were able to get a lot through. And one of the most important, of course, was the Title IX Amendment to the Educational Act of that year, which banned discrimination based on sex at all levels of American higher education. The public came to be fixated, of course, just on its impact on sports in schools and colleges, but it, was, um, it made a, a big difference across the board. Coming up after the break, Dr. Marjorie Sproul explains the South's role in killing the Equal Rights Amendment. 
and Aaron Haynes explains the major role Southern Black women have always played in America's grassroots movements. For AL.com, I'm Ben Flanagan. This is Outbreak Alabama, stories from a pandemic. When people say this is just a light flu or a bad cold, I mean, it's not, that's not accurate. I mean, it's worse than that. It really is. My mask protects everyone else, and everyone else's mask protects me. We didn't think we would be where we are right now with rising cases. We're going to be there. You know, we may be the last one standing. I hope that's not the case, but we're committed to, to being open. Outbreak Alabama. Stories from a pandemic. Search Outbreak Alabama on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, we also saw two prominent first ladies get very involved with pushing for the Equal Rights Amendment, Betty Ford, but then also Rosalind Carter out of Georgia, who I didn't realize had been kind of one of the first first ladies to have her own agenda in the White House that would sit in on meetings and things like that. Yes. Carter, when he was coming into office, he pointed out how she had been such a, a part of his business success and planes and kept the books and that she was the person whose opinion he most valued and wanted her to sit in on meetings and give him advice. And she did. Uh, previous first ladies, only Eleanor Roosevelt had been quite as involved and active in that, and she still didn't sit in on cabinet meetings. Nixon's wife, interestingly enough, Pat Nixon, this is a little known fact that she was very interested in the women's movement. I suppose one reason, aside from opinion polls, that Richard Nixon thought that he had to at least give lip service to feminism was that at home, the women in his family, his wife and daughters, at least especially Julie Eisenhower, were very supportive of women's rights and the Equal Rights Amendment. And one time when, he, when there were suddenly two Supreme Court vacancies and Pat Nixon was lobbying him to appoint at least one woman, and he came home, uh, came upstairs you know, for dinner one night and, and announced that he had appointed these two men and she wouldn't even speak to him. so you know there was there was support there on the part of the first ladies one of the things that happened of course when you had that period of bipartisan activity and congress was adopting lots of changes uh the supreme court was doing that at the same time ruth bader ginsburg was i mean she's there before she's appointed to the supreme court that comes later under clinton she's heading up an aclu sponsored equal rights project at which she is pushing to get the 14th Amendment. She's trying to establish women's equal protection under the law through that, at the same time that others are pushing for the Equal Rights Amendment. The reason why the ERA, which had been around since 1923, suddenly makes it through Congress in 1972 is that by this time, there have been enough adoption of equal rights legislation that was for both men and women, that the Democrats and the labor movement dropped their opposition to the ERA. The opposition had been, is so ironic given what later happens, but that from in the 1920s and 30s and 40s, the Republicans were much more supportive of it because they wanted to get rid of protective legislation for women. The businesses were firmly opposed and challenging in court all the time. And, and that was why many of the former suffragists, most of them actually, including Eleanor Roosevelt, you know, were opposed the Equal Rights Amendment because it would have 
at that time struck down the protective legislation for women that they had tried so hard to get and were fighting to keep in the courts. And that was particularly involving women who were in factory jobs or in industries where they had difficult conditions and low pay and and long hours. And, And these laws had been gained during the progressive era to protect them. On the other hand, the National Women's Party, who were had been the more militant suffragists who were picketing the White House and being in prison, they still existed. Many of them had been very young women while they were involved in those activities. And in 1923, they start pushing for the Equal Rights Amendment as a way to get rid of all the discriminatory bad laws out there that kept women down. So there was a bitter fight there for, that went on for decades between the majority of the former suffragists who were working to keep these laws that would protect these women and saw the National Women's Party's ERA as a direct threat to that. And it was just, it was a really bitter fight. But again, by 1970, this new movement is coming in and the, a lot of the people who are part of the National Organization for Women, they see this ERA and they think, this is a great idea. Let's go with it. And the elderly women, including Alice Paul, who was still around, were just absolutely delighted to see these younger women, you know, take up this issue. And then um, at first, labor was still going, no, we're not going to do this. But they brought labor around and said, look, there's laws that would have been taken away or being knocked down anyway, because now there's protection for both men and women. The ERA is not a danger to workers. And so that's how you got it. It wasn't that the Republicans suddenly came on board. It's that the Democrats suddenly gave up. And I remember the thrill in those days of when it looked like that this ERA not only had you know, gone through the House with overwhelming support from both Republicans and Democrats from the left and the right. You know, you have Teddy Kennedy and Bella Abzug, but you all have have Strom Thurmond. Even George Wallace sent a letter to Alice Paul saying, Dear Miss Paul, I think your amendment is great. Phyllis Schlafly later talked him into retracting that. But <laughs> Of course. Well, and that's what's interesting, because you have this massive coalition that has spans parties, spans generations, spans races, ethnicities, backgrounds, and everything seems like it's chugging along towards ratification. And then kind of in the shadows, there's this other coalition that's building among conservatives across a variety of backgrounds, uh, particularly various religious backgrounds that had not previously organized together. To try to be as concise as I can, what happened is that all the while through the 60s and early 70s that all of this feminist activity was going on, conservative women were absolutely appalled to see the federal government taking all of these women activists, many of whom were employed and professionals, taking them to be representative of American womanhood. They were seething with resentment. The only time that that really, however, cost the feminist movement in those early years was a big one, which was when the Child Care uh, Act went through Congress and then was vetoed by Nixon. And that was because a conservative woman named Connie Marshner in D.C., working for the Young Americans for Freedom, saw this and raised the alarm. And uh, they used all of these conservative mailing list of Richard Vigory and others to send letters all over the country saying you got to object to this. And then, of course, Pat 
Buchanan, who was a speechwriter for Nixon, wrote this speech making daycare seem like a socialist, a communistic scheme. And Richard Nixon gave that speech and the whole cause was set back a lot. But for the most part, these women were watching and not seeing this. And then in 72, when the ERA was about to be sent to the States in March of 72, Phyllis Schlafly got involved. And she had not been involved in the ERA issue before. Her party had been supporting it for years. She was absorbed in national defense issues, uh, anti-communism, anti-Soviet Union, and she had not really looked at it. But some of her supporters encouraged her to look at it, and she saw in it ways that she thought it could hurt the American family and the society. And she wrote a famous piece on it in her Phyllis Schlafly report in February of 72 that went out of What's Wrong with Equal Rights for Women, it was called. But uh, at any rate, it was very uh, useful and persuasive. And the important point here is that she did not come into this just out of nowhere. She had been a Republican activist for a long time. She had written the book, a pamphlet, a Choice Not an Echo, that helped the Republican Party decide to nominate Goldwater in 64. That was a debacle. The moderates and the liberals within the Republican Party were horrified by what it cost the party, it seemed. And they saw that she was about to rise to the presidency of the National Federation of Republican Women, and they were saying, no way. So they sort of engineered her defeat. But in the fight over that election, she had massive support from very conservative women around the country, and she lost. But her losing that battle really set the stage for her forming this very successful movement against the ERA, because after she lost, she and a couple of thousand very strong supporters marched out, talked about what they were going to do. They didn't form a rival Republican women's group like they considered, but they uh, kept together through a newsletter that she started at that point, the Phyllis Schlafly Report, a monthly newsletter that by 1972 had massive circulation. And also she held annual training conferences in St. Louis where she taught Republican women who were very conservative how to be more effective getting conservatives elected within their party and getting candidates out there. So when she came around to this issue, and sent out this newsletter, immediately her followers out there start taking that copy of the Phyllis Schlafly report and going down to their state legislators and going, hold on, don't ratify this. I know you're about to, but stop. We object. And that bought them time. And so what happened is that Phyllis Schlafly then reaches out to all these conservative women activists around the country that she already knows, that she's already worked with, and basically gets a lot of them in all the states where the ERA had not yet been ratified to step up and work. And then, you know, for them to recruit women within their states. Now, in the South, a number of these women had been involved in the massive resistance movement against integration. And they brought those ideas. Well, and it's interesting because their cause was anti-feminism, but in harnessing that cause, they were teaching women to be active in politics. They were teaching women to do press speaking engagements and things like that. I mean, they were basically doing kind of the mirror image of everything that was happening on the feminism side. 
but with opposite goals. And, and ultimately, that side has has mostly won out in the South. I mean, particularly around, you know, I, I know it's a separate issue from the ERA, but the anti-abortion issue becomes a big part of that rallying cry. Yes. In the early 70s, at the time of Roe, when the anti-abortion movement was first getting going, the anti-ERA and the pro-life movements were separate and deliberately so. Both groups were wanted to be running a single issue campaign so that therefore you can maximize the number of people that are in it. One of the main points that I argue in Divided We Stand is that in 1977, there was a series of congressionally sponsored state conferences leading to a national conference where women of America were invited to come together and vote on delegates and on resolutions and to create a document called the National Plan of Action that was supposed to guide Congress and the president on future policy regarding women. And it was set up still in the time period where both parties were supporting the feminist movement and where Gerald Ford was president and then it was inherited by Carter. Both of them appointed all feminists to lead it. That was bitterly resented by Schlafly and other conservative women. And so when they began these state-by-state meetings open to all citizens of that state, it became a massive, unexpected Armageddon of sorts, where both sides were trying to turn out their supporters to be able to get their resolutions adopted, to get their people elected as delegates to go on to the national so that the final document that came out you know, would reflect their view. And I argue that in those fights in all of the states, that that was really where this ERA coalition that had started earlier, that was drawing in different religious groups that were committed to male leadership in home, church, and state, and who felt that their way of life their ability to live according to their religious dictates were being threatened, and that included the uh, conservative Protestants, but also conservative Catholics and Mormons who played a a very big role in the anti-ERA movement, and even um, a smaller number, but Orthodox Jews. So those people had worked together, but the ERA had sort of been largely stopped by 1975. We didn't quite realize it at the time, but it had. Basically, they just resented the fact that, wait a minute, we thought we had made our point that not all women are feminists, and now you put money into this conference, and you put it in the hands of feminists, and so we're going to fight this all the way and take control of the message that goes out. So basically, as you organize in each state to challenge feminists for control of your state meeting, that's when they reached out even more to all of these groups and brought them together in an effective working coalition. And as the feminists put together their resolutions, and it was clear that it wasn't just the ERA and equal education and equal credit, that it was also support for freedom of choice on abortion and publicly funded abortion for those who needed it, and that also uh, 1977, when this is the state meetings are going on, coincides with when Anita Bryant creates this massive movement against gay rights. All of these state meetings that got really hot, and there were racial issues involved because the feminists were a diverse group of leaders, and they went out of their way to make sure that the delegates were also very diverse. 
and, and really supportive of minority rights. And a lot of the people who were on the other side, the conservative side, were, it included a number of people who were hostile to the civil rights movement. And some of them were members of the John Birch Society, and some of them were involved with the Klan. And both the Klan and the John Birch Society and the American Party all declared their support for the conservative women trying to challenge feminists over these things. It just feels a huge polarizing event. And what ends up happening is that these state meetings result in major fights in every state and territory even, whereas the battles over ERA had happened mainly in about 15 states. But this thing ended up inadvertently producing a backlash because these fights took place in every state. And so it basically creates the religious right, and it also creates this very determined group of pro-family activists who now are united with the pro-life movement. In fact, they hold a massive rally in Houston, Texas, during the National Women's Conference, which was ultimately held there. And they call it, it's organized by Lottie Beth Hobbs, with Schlafly coming as a speaker, and it's called the Pro-Life, Pro-Family Rally. And they're together now, and it sort of stays that way, bringing these two groups together. A lot of the men like Paul Weirich, founder of the Heritage Foundation, you know, they saw the power that anti-feminism had to politicize, mobilize, and unify religious conservatives And so the Republican Party dropped its 40-year record of support for the Equal Rights Amendment and took a firm pro-life position and more or less declared themselves the party of family values. Well, and 40 years later, it seems like that divide, as you were just talking about, that was really driven by powerful women on both sides, continues to be the dominating force in American politics. We're now 100 years after passage of the 19th Amendment and 50 years after these women's conferences. Do you see that dividing line breaking a little bit? Are we starting to see at least, I mean, probably not on the abortion issue, but certainly on an equal rights amendment, things like that, some shared understanding between conservative women and liberal women? I'm not seeing a lot of progress in terms of conservative women and liberal women getting together across these lines. I think things have gotten baked in so fully that it's difficult to, to make progress. Many people thought that, including me, that you know, women of all ages would rally around Hillary. I thought mainly that Democratic women of all ages would do that. But I never, having studied all this, I didn't expect that conservative women were going to do that. But a lot of people did, and they were surprised when she lost to Trump. We're all surprised. But what happened is that the religious right got firmly behind Trump. When Hillary Clinton lost, that really woke up a lot of people who had not seen the feminist movement as necessary anymore, who thought, okay, thanks for getting us Title IX in the old days. And a a lot of younger women were caught up with worry about student debt and to a certain degree about abortion, but they even felt secure there. I mean, most of them had come of age politically under the presidency of Barack Obama, who was extraordinarily supportive of the feminist movement and called himself a feminist, saying, writing an article saying, this is what a feminist looked like with his picture and smiling. And and so a lot of this took them surprise. So after that, 
we see the Women's March and we see the Me Too movement and we see massive politicization of American women. However, the conservative women never stopped being mobilized, really. Schlafly kept being active to her dying day. In fact, two or three days after she died, she published a book called The Case for Donald Trump. But it was a a wake-up call in a big way for women who are not part of that tight Christian conservative faction. But that group, I think, continues to be horrified by the abortion issue, to very upset the direction things have taken in terms of gay rights, and continue to distrust and believe all kinds of terrible things about their opponents and the Democratic Party. And I, I'm not seeing them give up on that. And in fact, the results of the 2016 election showed that a lot of those women that pundits expected would cross over and support Hillary Clinton because she was running against a politically inexperienced person who bragged about assaulting women and getting away with it, and who was clearly hostile to abortion rights and to women's rights, they stuck with them anyway. And the trend all the way from 1920 to the present has been most women make their decisions not because of their gender, but because of their community, the race, class, religion, region. And like the men in their families, they tend to hold on to political party preferences that they've been socialized in since infancy, and you rarely break with it. And they didn't break with it in 2016. That party loyalty just turned out to be an extraordinarily important factor. And so as we approach this coming election, that's the thing to watch for. Is that party loyalty going to hold in 2020 the way it did in 2016. So I guess it shouldn't be surprising that suffragists thought that they needed to appease Southern white supremacists in order to secure the support of Southern states to pass the 19th Amendment. Yeah, and it's interesting and it's disappointing that the white men in power in the South basically pitted white women against both black men and black women, ultimately trying to block access to the ballot box for both. It's a tactic that we see used to break up multiracial coalitions again and again and again throughout Southern history. But it's also noteworthy that so many Black Southern women were deeply involved in the women's suffrage movement, even if they suspected they wouldn't benefit from the 19th Amendment. Right. And next, Aaron Haynes of the 19th walks us through just that, how Black women have always been lead figures in grassroots movements, from suffrage to the Doug Jones campaign in Alabama, as well as the fight against voter suppression. Aaron, welcome to the Reckon interview. Thanks for taking time. Thanks for having me. Hey, y'all. First, I guess I should say happy belated Women's Suffrage Day and congratulations on the official launch of the 19th website. But it's the 19th with an asterisk. Could you talk about the 19th and what that asterisk represents? Yeah, we certainly are a newsroom named for the 19th Amendment, but with an asterisk. And that asterisk really represents the omission of women of color, Black women in particular, who had to fight twice as hard to get the right to vote. That came with the Voting Rights Act of 1965, the 55th anniversary of which we actually celebrate tomorrow. I mean, that's not to say that like Black women, you know, were not involved in the suffrage movement. Absolutely involved. I mean, but they were not given full access to the franchise. White women actually uh, were very divisive uh, in the suffrage movement, advocating really Uh, for the right to vote for themselves uh, at the expense of Black women. So you had uh, champions like Ida B. Wells, like Anna Julia Cooper, 
like uh, Mary Church Terrell, I mean, these women were also absolutely suffragettes, you know, but their work had to continue even beyond 1920 because uh, white women were not really equal partners in, in, in bringing them along, you know, really prioritizing their race over their gender at the end of the day. Yeah, I'm struck by a lot of ways we talk about the role Black women play in politics. I'm thinking back to actually the the Doug Jones-Roy Moore election here in Alabama a few years ago. It's as if, you know, there was this narrative that Black women all of a sudden woke up and got involved in politics and helped carry Doug Jones over the finish line. But we know that Black women in the South have always been at the forefront of movement building. They've always been at the forefront of organizing, particularly here in the South. It's, It's if... You know, folks had never heard of, you know, Fannie Lou Hamer, Ella Baker, Diane Nash. But I mean, I I think if there's a shift happening, maybe it's towards more women moving from sort of organizing roles to actually being candidates. Absolutely. Well, I mean, I think a couple of things are happening. One, you're absolutely right. Black women have been the vanguard of our democracy for uh, generations, right? Even before we had freedom, even before we had the right to vote, uh, we were trying to work, do the work of perfecting this democracy, right? Yet we were not always given credit for that. You know, I think that absolutely you had women during suffrage, during the civil rights movement who were doing a lot of that work and who were not credited for it. And, you know, so certainly that is one thing that is very different about our current moment is that Black women are really front and center in the continued battle for voting rights or voter turnout and really just are not asking for, but really demanding the power that they have earned and that they deserve for their decades and generations of work in this country uh, on behalf of our democracy. And so you see that in Black women voters, you see that in Black women organizers, you see that in Black women as candidates. Uh, All of those things have, have really just made the current moment that we find ourselves in a long time coming, where you had, like you said, Black women putting Doug Jones in office in Alabama, but also Stacey Abrams standing to try to become the first Black woman governor of Georgia. Most of the Black women mayors uh, in this country are in major cities across the South. I don't think that that's an accident. You had Kamala Harris as a formidable 2020 Democratic presidential candidate, the lone Black woman in that race. And and you now have half a dozen Black women in the conversation uh, to be the next vice president, possibly, of the United States. I mean, that doesn't happen without the consistent and disciplined efforts of, of Black women uh, in our politics in America. Yeah, because there's always been this kind of mentality that, you know, pushed by the establishment that, like, people have to wait their turn. And, you know, we've seen women are subjected to it, Black women, other women of color, even young folks. I mean, we're, we're looking at some of these other upsets around young candidates who are going up, and I'm talking about Democratic candidates, who are going up against, you know, establishment folks and beating them down. But I, th- I think it's interesting that, like, we do a lot of the same things we do with women when we talk about young voter. You know, there's this narrative that, you know, young people are apathetic and uninformed, but we often don't talk about the other piece of that, is, which is the concerted efforts to suppress voting, to make it very difficult for certain people to vote, particularly young people. I mean, in, in a regular election year, like it's very difficult to vote absentee. Can only imagine what kind of a, a mess is going to be this year in the middle of, of a pandemic. Yeah. And we're seeing polling saying that young folks are very, very interested in this election and yet have no idea how they're going to participate in this election, given that it's a pandemic, given the process around mail-in voting. 
uh, they don't feel like they have enough information to participate uh, in an election that they're very excited about. So, uh, you know, I think there's something, there's definitely something there. You see a lot of black men also across the South uh, becoming mayor who are, who are younger, right, who have challenged uh, a status quo. You think about, I mean, just the mayor of Selma, Birmingham, and Montgomery alone, right? Those mayors are all young black men, I mean, in cities that were, you know, sites of the civil rights movement two generations ago. Like, that is remarkable and challenging in some cases, people who had been in power for decades. And so I think that that is a shift that you're seeing, and we are starting to have a conversation. You think about another son of Alabama, John Lewis, you know, just passed away last month and really in leaving us, really wanted to pass that torch on to a new generation of Black leadership that, that does seem uh, ready to kind of take that mantle if this national reckoning on race is any indication. I mean, coronavirus is a voter suppression tactic in and of itself. You know, just in your observations covering, you know, this campaign from a national perspective, I mean, beyond making it, you know, more difficult to to do mail-in ballots, are you seeing other things that people should be on the lookout for? Yes. I mean, the pandemic is definitely political for folks, especially for Black folks. That is certainly true of the Black voters that I'm hearing from in this moment. The dual pandemics of coronavirus and racism are on people's minds, even as they are thinking about the election that is uh, some 90 days uh, ahead of us. And the conversation around mail-in balloting, raising the specter of voter fraud or like corruption around this election, uh, you know, Black people know what they're hearing when, when they hear, you know, that kind of rhetoric. They were already, you know, headed into 2020, very enthusiastic about participating in this election and told me that they were mainly focused on defeating the incumbent president in November. And so the other part of this is voter education is going to be hugely important, especially, you know, for the Black community and especially in areas where you have historic disenfranchisement that makes a lot of Black folks really feel better about actually casting a ballot in person, right? So conditioning them to the idea around absentee balloting as a vote that they can cast with integrity is going to be hugely important. But also just folks are in survival mode here in this pandemic, right? If you have to think about how you are going to pay the bills, frankly, the looming evictions that are, that, you know, could be a real possibility and a threat for uh, especially communities of color that is looming, uh, you know, if you don't have an address, how are you supposed to vote absentee, right? So that's also uh, a part of this and a part of, you know, the potential voter suppression piece. But also, you know, talking to voting rights activists, what they tell me is that voter suppression vis-a-vis this pandemic is also psychological, right? If you are, you know, being given all these messages about the uncertainty around the integrity of our election, right? That kind of reinforces the idea that maybe your vote doesn't matter. Maybe your vote's not going to count, right? So what's the point of me possibly mailing in a ballot that may never be counted or going to stand, you know, in a long line, uh, you know, for a vote that may not count. That is the psychological effect of voter suppression that I don't think that we talk enough about, uh, but that is very much part of what voter suppression looks like in the 21st century. Yeah, I mean, we try to equip folks with tools and resources. I mean, you talked about some of the voting rights advocacy groups that, that you've talked to. Who are the groups and individuals who are really either pushing back and fighting against voter suppression, mobilizing folks to register and vote. You know, I'm thinking of groups here in the South, like Woke Vote, Black Voters Matter, you know, Stacey Abrams's Fair Fight. Who are those folks that people should go to really for that good voter education that you say uh, is going to be so important this November? Well, I think you, you just answered your own question, right? I mean, those are the main groups that are leading the fight. And also, I mean, just note, 
Those are all uh, led by Black women, which, again, just underscores uh, the role that Black women have continued to play in our democracy, understanding that the vote is something to be defended, it is something to be protected, and it is something to be fought for each and every cycle up and down the ticket. So, you know, we're seeing Black women doing that again, even in the midst of a pandemic, trying to get creative, figuring out ways to make sure that their communities can vote safely and, and participate fully uh, in this democracy is absolutely something that I'm hearing from all of the groups that you mentioned is what they are very focused on headed into this fall. But I think because we are seeing a lack of response really uh, at the federal level in terms of election protection in a pandemic, right, uh, making provisions for folks to be able to vote, it is going to fall largely on local officials right? And I mean, voting is kind of largely a local process, right? I mean, secretaries of state and boards of election uh, at the ground level uh, are the ones that are ultimately responsible for carrying this out, right? But will they have the resources to do, one, the voter protection, and two, actually stand up the infrastructure uh, for folks to be able to cast ballots in the way that they need to? You know, because the other part of this is we know, I mean, RL, like how many times have you gone to a precinct, doesn't matter where you live, especially if you live in the South, I mean, there's an old black woman working that poll, right? That precinct. Uh, and it's the same one that was there, I mean, especially, you know, in the community I grew up in, uh, right outside of Atlanta. Same poll workers pretty much from the time I turned 18 to the time I, you know, graduated from college and moved out of my mom's house, right? Black women and older folks uh, are, tend to be poll workers. They tend to volunteer. They tend to be the ones that, that are able to do that work, right? And we know there are going to be fewer of those because that is also the vulnerable population for coronavirus, right? So if you have fewer poll workers, that means you have fewer precincts. Fewer precincts equals longer lines. So really, standing up a mail-in, widespread mail-in voting can mitigate what we are almost sure to see in, in the loss of precincts across the country, just uh, because the infrastructure just is not going to be what it is under normal circumstances. Yeah, and you mentioned the anniversary of the, the Voting Rights Act, the 55th anniversary, which you note is, is the first we've had with without Congressman Lewis. And the crazy thing about it is because of Shelby v. Holder, there's a lot that we don't know that we don't know. I mean, we know that since 2014, when a lot of these states came out from under preclearance, you know, lots of precincts and polling places have closed, but it's really hard to document. We've tried to document them as journalists, and it's very difficult because there's no longer any reporting requirement to the federal government. Right. And when you take a section five, right, what you're left with is section two which, you know, folks don't have to get permission to do certain things anymore. And then, you know, injustice or harm has to be proved. It's on, you know, those communities to say that whatever laws are being passed or changes are being made uh, would be harmful to them. They have to show that and prove that as opposed to, you know, those jurisdictions having to go through a Department of Justice before they make those kinds of changes. Yeah. I mean, and after the fact, the election has to have ha has happened and then you have to, you know, claim that there was a violation of the act. You know, I'm thinking of, I don't know if I want to say how far we've come, but, you know, in 2014 in Ferguson, which you and I like both covered, we were, I think we were ships in the night. Like it would have been political suicide for a lot of politicians to embrace Black Lives Matter, to condemn Darren Wilson, the, the officer who killed Mike Brown in, in my hometown of St. Louis. But, you know, we've seen a lot of like very strong condemnations from surprising places about the killing of George Floyd by police in Minneapolis. And I don't want to get all kumbaya with it, but like, is there like, does that tell us that like maybe some of that energy 
like might spill over into, you know, regardless who wins the White House, regardless what the composition of Congress looks like, might there be opportunities for people to say like, yeah, maybe we do need to take a look at reinstating some pieces of the Voting Rights Act. Congresswoman Sewell from Alabama has a bill. It's passed the House. It's not passed the Senate. Might we keep that energy? Well, you know, I think what it suggests is that attitudes are changing, right? And that's always the first step is when you get, you know, a plurality of Americans that are open to the idea of systemic racism, for example, persisting in this country, right? When you have folks who are beginning to understand that maybe the police don't treat everyone equally in all communities across this country, right? I mean, that is the beginning of that conversation. But I do think that that is where we are in large part for the majority of America. Obviously, this is a conversation that Black folks have been having uh, in this country for a long time or trying to have in this country for a very long time. But what is different about this moment or what feels different is that you have uh, white folks uh, literally willing to finally have some skin in the game on this. And that is frankly what is required uh, for real progress and and the kind of structural change to uh, systems and institutions that these uh, folks who have been in the streets are are calling for. So I do not attempt to predict anything in our current uh, sociopolitical climate. I have not done that for, for some time, but what I would say is that, like I said, it feels different. You know, the potential uh, for change is certainly here, but I think that that we are only at the beginning of that work. And so it remains to be seen who and how much will there is to actually go the distance uh, to to bring about the kind of progress around inequality that, that is frankly long overdue. And that's our show. Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of The Reckon Interview. We're commemorating women's equality all week. We'll have some exciting projects coming later this week, including online events with descendants of major African-American suffrages. So be on the lookout for that. Thank you to Dr. Marjorie Spruill. You should check out her book, Divided We Stand, from your favorite local bookstore if you want to learn more about women's movements in the South. And to Aaron Haynes, whose work you can find at 19thnews.org. This episode was executive produced and co-hosted by me, John Hammontree. And me, R.L. Nave. And it was edited by Abby Gibson at Edit Audio. Subscribe to The Reckon Interview wherever you get your podcasts, and please leave us a five-star review. Check out our new website, ReckonSouth.com. Follow us on social media, all of the above. And until next week, thanks for reckoning with us.